You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. Well, welcome back, everyone. Glad to have y'all back. And once again, as always, we appreciate y'all listening to our podcast. And as we've said many times already once before, we are super excited about all the responses we've been getting from you guys. It's been great. The emails, the chatter that we get from people that we meet. I went to ICAST the other day and I was walking down the the walkway and somebody yelled out at me and said, are you one of the two bald biologists? I was like, holy smokes. You're famous. (laughs) We're famous in Florida, which I don't know what that means. But anyway. Only one of the bald biologists got to go to ICAST. Well, I'm sorry for you. But the guy was from North Carolina, so that did help. So anyway, we're so thankful that you guys are listening to the podcast and keep sending those responses in to us at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org. Well, the last podcast we had, we talked about tournament catfishing with Tyler Barnes, and Tyler's back again with us this time to talk a little bit more about catfishing and to talk about catfish biology. So we'll get more down into the weeds about the science of catfishing here. So Tyler, tell us a little bit about yourself. First of all, guys, it is so good to be back here with both of y'all, and and I really enjoyed doing these podcasts with y'all. And my name is Tyler Barnes. I'm from Pikeville, North Carolina, and I'm a tournament catfishing angler. Yeah. And so what we established on the last podcast, Ben, was got to have the colors, got to have the color scheme, got to be matching. Everything's got to be awesome. Got to have all kinds of lights. I mean, you know, you don't have to have that, but if you want to be cool in this group, it helps. I mean, I think that the the rods are, are a huge part of catfishing and they match. And we said earlier, the line, the rods, the boat, the truck, wheel bearings, as much as they can... These guys are a stylish group of folks, more so than I originally thought about when you think about catfish. Well, when you think about catfish, you know, they're big, they're slimy, they get all over your boat. Kind of a yin and yang thing, right? So when I think back to my catfishing experiences prior to going out with Tyler, it was just kind of standard rods and standard stuff. There ain't nothing standard about catching a 40-pound plus fish. nothing standard about catching a 40-pound plus fish, and that's... Except for Tyler, it's standard for him. He does it every other night. Yeah, it's standard for him, but not for us. But we had a great time being out on the boat with him, and we learned a lot during that trip, and it was a really good time. So one of the things that has really exploded here in North Carolina is this tournament catfishing for large species of catfish that we now have in North Carolina. And generally, we have three species of catfish. Two of them get much larger than the third that a lot of you guys, Tyler, are fishing for. One is the flathead catfish. The other one that gets pretty large is the blue catfish. And then a lot of people have historically caught channel cats here in North Carolina as well that don't get quite as large. They still get pretty big. What's the state record, Ben, seeing as how you've certified all three state record catfish of those three species? I certified two within like a week of each other. Yeah, you were extra special that week. Yes. Well, I was extra tired yeah, for sure. For some reason, these guys don't call you, you know, at 9 a.m. They call you at 3 a.m. 
Tyler, what was that state record? I don't want to say it wrong. I think the channel catfish being was around about 27 pounds, wasn't it? Well, that's what I was thinking. So, yeah, I was going to say that. I just didn't want to be wrong. So, you know, channel cat gets 27 pounds, but, you know, flatheads and blue cats on average, you know, can get 30, 40, 50 pound. I mean, it's still a big fish and it's not common, but you can catch a lot of them that are that size. And then your state record fish weighed what, Tyler? Uh, 78.9 pounds. 78.9. That's a big catfish. And the state record blue cat from the Roanoke was... 127 pounds? Like a true... Yes, a monster. True monster. In fact, and we didn't get into this in the last podcast, the third largest of all state records yes. is that one. So... Yes, it's a monster. It's a big fish. And so... I bring all three of those species up, but those are really large fish. Okay, brief correction. I just looked it up. The channel catfish was 26 pounds. You liars. We were one pound off. Can you imagine an angler exaggerating a little? I mean, that never happens, right? Well, that's what we're here for, to get the scales to keep everybody on point. That's right. But those fish get really large, and that's why they're really fun to catch. You get that experience Probably in the freshwater fishing world in North Carolina, we don't have that experience outside of those species of catfish. Really nothing else. Yeah, there's I mean, nothing else out there. A rare striped bass, maybe. Yeah, but they still, I mean, they're not going to be 70, 80 pounds. None. You know, that opportunity is not going to be there. It's these guys that are getting super huge. And that I think that's why it's become so popular, is that it does give anglers that opportunity to catch a fish or to have the opportunity to catch a fish that is that is that large in freshwater in North Carolina. Even a lot of saltwater fishermen oh yeah, rarely ever catch a fish over 50 pounds. Yeah, exactly. It's just a big fish. When you hold one and get around one, it is impressive. I mean, to me, I think they're pretty impressive when you see them up close and personal. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've seen some. In fact, I had a right before Tyler caught his, we shot one up that was in the 70-pound range as well. And, I mean, it's amazing just those fish get so big that they don't even look real anymore in some yeah. regards. You know, yeah. it's amazing. It's almost like they change a little bit of form. They don't right. even quite look like they're supposed to at times, especially the blue cats. Blue cats can look really weird when they get big to me. Flatheads kind of hold their form, but those blue cats look strange at times when they get over 100 pounds. Bulbous. bulbous. I, I think it's a good yeah, word bulbous. to describe them. They get large. Yeah, <laughs> very that's fat. right. But with that, Ben, tell us a little bit about those fish, where they came from, are they from here, you know, those kinds of things about those catfish. Sure. So both flatheads, blue catfish, and channels are all native to the Mississippi River and that drainage. So none of those three species are actually native to North Carolina. In the Mississippi, they commonly exist with other bullheads and other catfish species. But in North Carolina, they've been introduced. And the flatheads were actually stocked by the Wildlife Commission long, long ago in the Cape Fear River. The blue cats have migrated through some stocking through. They're coming in from the north. We've stocked them in some of our reservoirs over the years. But they're really starting to take a real good hold in the coastal rivers Really, probably in the last probably 10 to 15 years, and the flatheads maybe have been here a little bit longer in our coastal rivers, but really both fish kind of popped up on the map in the 90s. And maybe the flatheads a little bit earlier than the blues, but really kind of in that same window. And really, in all honesty, as soon as they showed up, they started getting big. 
these are good habitats. There's a lot of food availability. And we saw very dynamic growth rates early on with fish growing probably twice as fast as what you would expect in their native range, which we're going to get into that and what that means. But basically, when they got here, they got here and they got a foothold in quickly. And really, it took a few years for the anglers to catch up, you know, as far as being able to catch them efficiently. Yeah, I mean, I can attest to growing up on the Noose River, just kind of upstream of Newburn. When I was a kid, the catfish basically were channel cats, white cats, which is a different species of fish, which we'll talk about later. You know, and that was kind of the dominant two fish that you saw when you're a channel cat. Every once in a while, you catch a bullhead or something like that when you're catfishing, but it, it was pretty much those species. In my childhood, the same thing. I mean, catfish, we ate them. Yeah. You know, you catch them, you eat them, you take them home. The trophy fishery, that was not really a thing that we, we really did. It could have been because we didn't have matching rods and 150-pound braid. That's true. It could be that we were not geared up correctly. <laughs> but really, particularly on the noose, I mean, they'd been in the Cape Fear for a long time, but particularly on the noose in that late 90s, mid to late 90s, going into early 2000s, you started to see this switch with flatheads. Flatheads showing up more and more became more prevalent. You started catching more and more of them. What you also saw was this decline in white cats. You know, mm-hmm. white cats became less and less. You didn't see as many of them. Channel cats seem to hold on. I mean, you still see channel cats today, but you didn't see that white catfish. We grew up calling them old shoe heads. And if you catch one, you'll know why, because it looks like somebody stepped on its head. Yeah, they have a real fat, blunt, yep. real rounded, almost kind of tadpole body shape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's big head at the front and then narrow body, narrow tail towards the back end. And, and they don't get nearly as big. You're not going to catch a white cat. You catch a 10-pound white cat, it is a trophy white cat. You need to hang it on the wall. I'm not telling you hang it on the wall, but it's a monster. I would. Yeah, I'd be proud of it. There'd be a lot of pictures being taken of a (laughs) 10-pound white cat for sure. And so that's one of the things. This fishery has come about. You know, we've gotten flatheads now. we got blue cats now in almost all our coastal rivers. And as you sweep across the state going west, I mean... Yeah, they're in our lakes. They're in our reservoirs. They're in our rivers. They're in the PD River, you know, going down into South Carolina. They're in the Catawba. They're everywhere. And it might be important to mention that there's a section of the mountains that flows west where they are native. Where they are native historically. That's right. If you get over the Continental Divide and the river's flowing into Tennessee... Those fish are native in those systems, so they are native to North Carolina. They're just not native to Atlantic Slope rivers, which is primarily the bulk of the state. It's, you know, five-sixths of the state is east of the Continental Divide. So I guess, Ben, from a biological perspective, this has been great fishing and everybody's fishing, but what are the consequences of these great fisheries that we have now? So, so yeah, nothing to take away from the angling opportunity and the popularity that that's gotten. I mean, it's impossible to ignore that, really. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd start by saying, Tyler, what's your favorite bait to catch catfish with? Oh, well, Ben, that'd probably be brim. A brim. Yeah. I wonder why. <laughs> so what we have, and the reason why I asked that question is because what about, have you ever fished with smaller catfish? Using catfish as bait. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And how good do they work as bait? Just as good. So, so, and what the research has shown us is basically to summarize that is these are apex predators. And so when you take a predator and you put them in an environment, they're going to start to do what they do. And that's eat things, you know? Yeah. 
And a, a flathead has full confession in my catfish surveys. It has always been my dream to get a flathead big enough that I can put my head in its mouth. And I came close a couple of times. In fact, even with the record one, we tried. And it just barely didn't go over my head. Full confession, got a pretty big head. <laughs> it's a fairly large cabeza. I'm just glad I don't have any hair on it to get in my way. This is true. For this pursuit. But we're going to get there one day. But anyway, that being said, if I can almost get my head in a catfish's mouth, there's a lot of things in the river that can fit in there very easily. Yeah. And what we've seen and what most of the literature has shown that the first thing that these flatheads start to eat on are the native catfish, the native white cats, the native bullheads, some of our smaller catfish, the, the mad toms. And then the next thing on the hit list, probably after native catfish, are red-breast sunfish. And we don't see many redfish, red-breast sunfish, in, or robins, as my, yep. I grew up calling them. Calling them robins. We don't see them in the systems that have a lot of flatheads in them, with the exception of like the Lumber River, the Black River. They're still kind of a... Yeah, they're holding on. There's flatheads there, but the red-breasts are also hanging on. And... Aside, that's a really good place to catch a really big red breast. Yep. Maybe because they're trying to... And maybe because they're... Outgrow a flathead mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we see initially with flathead introductions is there's a shift in the species composition. As we see the, the shift and we see red breasts fall away. But we also, you know, there's other sunfish species that persist like bluegill. And it's not that we don't see red breast in the noose or the tar rivers as much as We've just seen a shift in the population. With blue cats on the other side, it's a little bit different. It's not necessarily that the blue cats are predating directly upon the sunfish and the catfish. It's just that they're out competing. Right, Corey? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about it's being attacked from different ways. It's biology 101. You got out competing, and then you got straight up predation. and there is predation going on with blue cats because they're pretty much generalists. They'll eat, they'll eat peanuts off of farms. I mean, not off the farm. They're not getting up on dry ground. But as the peanuts like up in Northampton County flow out of the fields where farmers harvested the fields and gets in the lake, we've done diet studies up at Lake Gaston, and these things are full of peanuts. So Seagulls play a role in that if you can do the math on that one. Yes, there's a way that that happens. But anyway, they're pretty much generalists, right? But the thing with blue cats is it's just straight up biomass. Like, they're just out-reproducing and outgrowing everything else that's around them, so to speak. And that's what they've seen up in Chesapeake Bay in Virginia. That's what we see in a lot of our reservoirs throughout the Piedmont, is that these things grow exceptionally fast. There's not much that can slow them down that we've seen so far. In fact, I don't know that we've seen anything that can slow them down, other than they do kind of get to a place where they kind of max out because there's just so many of them. Right. There's only so much food to go around. We've talked about that on the podcast in the past on different species, but eventually there are so many of them that the reason that they don't get super large in certain reservoirs is that they just, there's just not enough food for them to eat. There's just that many. And that's the thing about an invasive fish is that when it comes to the system, it really doesn't have a predator that eats it, right, Tyler? It's new to the system. So the predators in the system don't know really what to do with it. And then on top of that, it looks around and it looks like a smorgasbord to them. You know, everything here is for me to eat. And the 
prey are not ready for them either. And so that's part of it. So they don't, it's just a totally different fish. They didn't grow up together. They haven't been in the same systems for long periods of time. And so they just have an advantage. And these guys, particularly the blue catfish and the flag catfish, really have an advantage because they know how to eat. They have this large gape and they'll eat just about anything. And they know how to put that into growth, rapid growth. And they know how to put that into reproduction. Like if you've ever caught a female flag catfish in the spring of the year when they have eggs, it is impressive. Like their entire body cavity is full of eggs. They have pushed all their organs up to like the back of their throat because there's so many eggs inside this fish. And so that's how they take over. You know, that's how they become so fat. I mean, we're talking 20, 25 years and these fish are practically everywhere, particularly in the coastal plain, but really in the Piedmont too. I mean, it's really been about a 30 year window of time that these things have really taken hold. And anglers have moved them around. You know, we brought them here back in the 60s and they kind of stayed in the Cape Fear for a long period of time. There was some stocked in the Catawba Basin, you know, back in the mid 60s. And so they kind of stayed in that area. But then anglers found out that they really like to catch them. And so they started moving around. Now they're everywhere. We have pretty much flatheads and blue cats almost everywhere, except for maybe flatheads aren't. Are flatheads in the Roanoke drainage, the river itself? I'm not sure. If there are, there's very low, low level. Yeah, they haven't taken off yet. And we like, I mean, since we're on that topic, we really don't need, there's a bunch of reasons why we'll get that into. But if you're a catfisherman, you're like, man, it'd be great to catch a flathead on the Roanoke. Please don't introduce them. One, it's against the law. Yeah. And two. It's the blue light special, as we like to call it. Yeah, two. Yeah, you'll definitely get a blue light special if you do that, which means you'll get a ticket. Yes. And two. There's a lot of species that we're working on that this would conflict with. So if you like catching flatheads, go to where they are. Yeah. But the trick in management from a resource management position is, and this is why I wanted Tyler in on this conversation, is because we're up against this prolific, ever-growing popular fishery for catching large flathead catfish. But we also have these conservation concerns, you know, and Tyler and I have talked about this multiple times and the fact that there's, it's like anything, there's good and bad to everything we do. That's right. And so that's why I really wanted his take on some of this as we talked about that is because we're not catching the red breast that you and your daddy used to catch. Flatheads are in large part responsible for that, but we are catching big flatheads and that's fun. Tyler, what do you think about all this that you're hearing right now? Well, Ben... As you said, there's really no concerns on the catfish population. I would say that there's catfish everywhere, and there's plenty of them. And as Ben has told me, because I'll pick his brain quite a bit, and I'll say, well, Ben, I said, well, where are these catfish held up? He'll say, well, Tyler, they're in every log jam, they're in every bend, they're under every tree, they're everywhere. It took me about two months of telling him that they were everywhere. And in fact, one night, Tyler called me and was in Clayton at order level that I've never even been able to get to. He's like, I don't even know how you got there. He's like, well, there's big ones here too, you know? So (laughs) they're literally where they are in the system. They're throughout it. Yeah, they're really everywhere. And Ben, would you say, as we were talking about the red breast, the robins, and uh, that we don't see them anymore, would you say that there's still a very large abundance of sunfish in the river? Would that be the reason that Because a lot of people say, well, man, the the flathead catfish, man, they're just, 
destroying populations. Eventually, there's going to be no fish left in the river but catfish. Is that a possibility? So it's always important to not speak in huge generalizations. (laughs) That's how you get in trouble. I think there is a straight line to be drawn between flatheads and red breast abundance and flatheads and white catfish abundance and some of our other night native catfish. I think there's a very cause and effect relationship that's undeniable. And I think what, what anglers need to do is understand you don't need to deny what's going on. It is what it is. There's plenty of things that are what they are and we wish they were different, but no, we're not going to run out of sunfish. It's kind of, as they say, as one door opens, another door shuts. And what we're seeing is the bluegill populations, the red breast population, some of the other sunfish populations are able to handle the level of predation that's put upon them. Now, you want to talk to Corey's dad about the lack of redfish, and he's going to have a completely, or lack of redfish, lack of red breast or robins. He's going to have a completely different perspective on the issue. So there's definitely people that miss the species that are currently missing. And to be honest, it's going to be very hard to bring them back, if at all possible. Yeah, yeah. and that's probably the take-home, Tyler, to, to an invasive coming in is, yeah, at some point, the noose or the tar or wherever we're talking about, it, or even the reservoir in the Piedmont or in the mountains, will reach kind of an equilibrium and then kind of a balance. Those invasive fish will find their place and kind of dominate. And then the other fish that are still there will figure out how to, and that's probably what's going on in the noose. We're now probably close to 30 years on the noose with flatheads and blues have showed up. And so we're kind of getting there. So what you see is kind of what you get short of hurricanes and die-offs and those kinds of things, which we'll talk about later. But Here's a take home, and I'm not bad mouthing big, large flatheads. They're fun to catch. I love them. I'll just be honest with you. But from a biological perspective and from a biodiversity perspective in North Carolina, here's what I've seen as a biologist in North Carolina and as a native son of North Carolina. When I grew up fishing, which I've already mentioned, white cats, bullheads, those catfishes were the predominant catfish in the Atlantic Slope drainages of North Carolina. Short of a few places like, I'm scared to say because we might lose them, short of places like the Pungo, maybe the White Oak, some of those very, very coastal areas where saltwater may be having a, you know, unless somebody brings those fish into those systems, short of those places, those bullheads don't exist anymore. When I started working for the Wildlife Commission, the upper Yadkin River was like bullhead central. And we're talking, you know, these fish are no more than a foot long for the most part. Some of them might get two, three pounds, but they really don't. And white cats too. And those fish are just, they're becoming less and less and less, and they're being dominated by blues and flatheads. And so we're losing that biodiversity. There's also catfish in our state that are called mad toms, which are really tiny. They don't really get much greater than what being six, seven inches or probably the bigger yeah, ones. Be- I've seen a few Carolina mad toms, which is actually an endangered fish in North Carolina. I've seen a few Carolina mad toms that are probably eight, nine inches long, but they're the perfect size and they're inhabiting the same places that flatheads inhabit. And so guess what? Flatheads are going to eat them when they show up. So for instance, like the Carolina mad tom, you're talking about a fish that its native range was the noose and tar basin. It practically does not exist in the new space anymore. I think we've seen one maybe in the last 10 to 20 years out of the new space, and particularly they come from Continua Creek area. And they were in a lot of other creeks, kind of the larger creeks of the noose. 
and they just don't exist. And there's other reasons besides the flathead that they're probably not there, but the flathead is a leading cause of that, right? And they're in the very upper end of the tar basin now. And that's basically it. They've been pretty much exterminated, is the word I use, the real words, extirpated. But they've pretty much been exterminated throughout that system because of an introduction of flatheads. So they're here. You know, flatheads are here. Blue cats are here. Everybody needs to go out and enjoy them. It's no big deal. We're not like slapping people on the wrist or whatever, but there are consequences to our actions, just like everything, you know, like raising a child, right? There are consequences to what we do. (laughs) And I think that's kind of from a, just like we're seeing a shift in the bass world, which we've talked about in past podcasts, we're seeing a shift in the catfish world. In fact, the shift in the catfish world is much further along because these catfish have been here a lot longer. And so if I had take-homes for catfishermen is, yeah, go out and enjoy them, do what you do, but realize there ain't no slowing down this train. This train is on the tracks. And, you know, you talked about in the last podcast that you were really excited about putting that fish back. I'm not telling you not to put the fish back. That's not what I'm telling you, but you're not doing anything about putting that fish back because there's 15 gazillion other ones down there. That's a word, gazillion. There's 15 gazillion other ones down there that would soon take its place if that fish didn't exist. I think, and the reason why I want to get Tyler in here is because there's a lot of guys in the catfishing world and and Tyler knows a lot of them. And there's no reason to not just own what's going on. You know, and a lot of folks, I'll get anglers talking to me all the time. They're like, it's not as good as it used to be. I'm like, it used to not be here. (laughs) (laughs) So that can't possibly be 100% true. We're going to have to pull that statement apart a little bit because in terms of flathead fishing, it's way better than it used to be because they used to not exist here. So understanding that and then also understanding it's a lot like wild hogs. Wild hogs are problematic for landowners where they exist doesn't mean they're not fun to hunt yeah you know but they do cause problems so from a flathead catfish it's the same thing they're a lot of fun to catch doesn't mean they don't have some concerns about their existence on the landscape and maybe in some ways resource managers have kind of put themselves in opposition when they didn't really mean to because they've said things like you just said, well, there's plenty of brim in the river. Well, we didn't say they eat all the brim. We said that they're really working on the brim, which those are two different things. So we also have to be careful about what we're saying as far as their impacts on the sunfish population as well. They are affecting certain sunfish populations. We're not going to run out of sunfish. Not yet. Not yet. But the take home is, like, for instance, flatheads have worked on robins. I mean, robins don't exist in the noose where I grew up. I mean, they probably exist, but they don't exist nearly at the levels when I was a child. We could go out and catch robins fairly consistently. And now I don't remember the last time I've caught a robin in the we lower see, In our surveys, we see one to three a year, maybe. Yeah, and that's crazy. Right. I mean, that, that's nuts when that fish used to be very common when I was a little kid. And the take-home is, is the next invasive, if we have another invasive, and hopefully we're, this is educational for people to not bring invasives, but the next invasive could, one, work on a different species of sunfish, right? It could work on red ears. It could be very good at nailing red ears and understanding how to eat them, you know, in their habitats. Or two, it could, it could work on flatheads or something. I mean, you never know what that next fish that you bring in is going to do and the detrimental effects that it can have. And white cats being a river 
habitat fish. Yeah. They've definitely worked on, the flatheads have definitely worked on the white cats. They're still, because yeah. I know there's somebody that's listening to this right now. It's like, that guy doesn't know what I was talking about. I was in Contendia Creek the other day, and He's I an caught yeah. three bullheads. Most of those bullheads are going to be kind of pushed up the creeks, pushed up the swamps, not in the flowing river. They're still going to be relatively isolated. Wouldn't you say, Tyler? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, it's not that they're gone. I think bullheads are going to stick around at a low level, but it won't be near what it used to be. So when you're fishing and when you're catching bait, like you're catching bullheads or you're catching sunfish to use as bait, you're seeing what we're saying, right? Or is it totally different? Oh, you're right. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I mean, I mean and it's... You know, when we went out fishing with you, you talked about how great a shellcracker was as a bait, that you loved it as a bait, which I found, I was like... The first time I've ever heard those words together. Yeah, that was a problem because I like eating shellcrackers, so that bothered me a little bit (laughs) in my mind. When you put that first shellcracker on the hook, I was like... He's about the right size for the frying pan, but whatever. We're out here fishing. We're not out here eating. I think Corey did say, like, this is cool because if it doesn't work out, we can eat the bait. (laughs) (laughs) I did did think that way, and I probably said it. But in my mind, I'm like, it's crazy to me that you're using that size bait on a fish. Like, I never thought about using for flatheads, using literally a pound, pound and a quarter readier. But you talk about how great that bait Imagine if we actually had robins to you. I ain't kidding. <laughs> Those fish would, I mean, Flad's eyes would light up, you know, <laughs> be like, look at that thing. That's what I really want to eat. These 50, 60 pound flatheads that are in the Noose River. Yeah. They are probably 25 to 30 years old. Yeah. They've probably eaten a fair number of robins in their day, yeah. at least oh, early yeah. on. But not only do they eat that, they eat, I mean, they eat large mouth. They eat everything that's swimming around them that they can fit in their mouth. I mean, for the most part, obviously they have preferred baits that they like, preferred foods, but they are. A, and the reason why they're successful is because they are a generalist. They can do well in a variety of environments. And basically the only thing they need is flowing water with some structure in it, you know? Yeah. And the important thing to remember as I talk to folks all the time about catfish and catfish management and really, I've worked where they're native. I've worked where they've been introduced. A former life I was in Alabama. There's nowhere that flatheads exist that I'm aware of where there aren't some big flatheads. And in fact, in states like Georgia that did some concerted effort to try to change the population through harvesting of fish, they were shocking fish out as hard as they could for days and days on end, basically his full-time job was doing nothing but trying to harvest fish, remove flathead catfish. One, they were still, I mean, they did reduce the number of large flatheads, but they were still there. Yep. And two, there's actually more flatheads at the end of it. And that gets to what Corey was talking about earlier with the eggs is this, these fish are, they're programmed for self-sustainment, so to speak. You know? Yeah, it's crazy about that study. You know, if you look back at what Georgia did, and are they still doing it? I think it's toned back. At I least. think they toned it back. But these guys, Tyler, were electrofishing these flatheads out of the Satilla River. I believe, I believe it was. I believe it was Satilla River, trying to restore redbreast habitat and trying to get redbreast back on the landscape. That were still there, but were much more diminished because flatheads had been introduced. So they were just out there harvesting flatheads, flats, 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 you know, just doing it as much as they could, spending months on the electrofishing pedal. And what they found was one, like Ben said, 
those fish were still there. Two, they changed how fast they became mature. Those fish right. at smaller sizes started producing eggs at much smaller sizes. So the pressure that the biologists were putting on them, they didn't stop reproducing. They just started reproducing at a younger age. And so they produced eggs. So, And the thing that they really learned, which is true about every invasive, I don't care what it is, or probably any fish really, is as soon as they take the foot off the pedal, boom, they come rushing back. And so if, if they want to keep, and I think they are still doing it at some level, if they want to keep red breasts in the Satilla River, what they've decided is we're going to have to keep doing this practically forever. And that's a tall order to be harvesting that kind of fish for long periods. But what the take-home is, is that an invasive fish, particularly flatheads and blues, really, there's really, like I said, get on the train because there's really no stopping this train. This train is on the track and we're going down <laughs> this track and you're just going to have to get on board with it. My take home would be is if these fish don't exist in the places like the White Oak, the Pungo, like Ben mentioned, let's just leave it be. Let's not put them out there. It's nice to have some places that are natural, you know. Yeah. And those smaller rivers, they're not going to support but so much anyway. We might as well leave them the way they are, enjoy them for what they are, and go from there. So, And that really speaks to, so North Carolina, about three years ago, the Wildlife Commission designed a, or wrote a catfish management plan for the state. And that's really what the catfish management plan says. Where they are, go catch them, have fun with them, do the things you got to do. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it a lot, but go catch a flathead, go catch a blue cat, have fun with them, do the things that tournament catfishermen will do or just your general catfishermen will do, you know, go out there and do that. But in the places that we still have these native fish and we don't have flatheads and blue cats, we really want to maintain that that diversity forever if we can. If we lose those, yeah, we may not have anywhere where you can see these species. And that, I think, is the crux of it and the issue. is, Yeah, if you love flatheads, that's great. But at the same time... We don't want to lose a species that's native to North Carolina. Because there are people that love those species. There are people that love bullheads. There are people that love mad toms. And there's people that want to know that there's places that they're still, even if they can't go, even if they can't see them, it's good to know that there's places that are still kind of natural and wild for North Carolina. Yeah. And I think that's what the plan tried to get to is that we're going to manage, which you really don't have to manage. They kind of manage themselves. We're going to manage for them where they are. And where they're not, we're going to try to prevent them from getting there kind of thing. And that's kind of the management plan, which is a lot of pages in a, in about a three-sentence nutshell. It's on our webpage. Yeah, you can find it at ncwildlife.org if you want to read it. There's a lot of great information in it, a lot of species profiles. It's a wealth of information on catfish. Anybody who's an avid catfish angler, I'd recommend they at least take a look at it because there's a lot of good information in there. And if you can't find it, contact us at twoballbiologists at ncwildlife.org and we'll send it right to you. Not a problem. It's not a problem. So since we're on catfish management, I get a lot of folks talking to me about trophy regs. And Tyler, Corey's been running his mouth too much, let's be honest. And uh, <laughs> I want to hear, you know, Tyler is a trophy fisherman or trophy catfish. So let's talk trophy regs for a second and let's see what your input or what your ideas are about that. As far as catching the fish or my setups, as far as how I go about. No, as far as the regulations. As far as the regulations. Oh, okay. Okay. The regs. Okay. I'm with right. you. 
Because we do have several lakes in North Carolina that have a one over 30 rule. It's 32. One over 32, sorry. There's about six to eight reservoirs in the state. I was told not to talk, but I'm talking. That you can only keep one blue cat. So right. there's no regs on flatheads. You can only keep one blue cat over 32 inches. Mm-hmm. So that's in about six to eight reservoirs right. in our state. So anyway, that exists as a rule in North Carolina. I've had anglers kind of ask me why we can't have it on other systems. And before I talk too much about that, I just wanted to get your take on that. Sure. So I've been catfishing a long time. And as you said, that there's fish everywhere. They're here. They're not going anywhere. They're getting bigger and better and stronger every day. And as a tournament angler, there's a lot of other guys, including myself, that Really love to conserve these fish, have bigger fish, let every fish go. And I totally understand that. But honestly, the Noose River has so many fish in it. It is so populated. It, I encourage people, if you want to go fish and you want to go catch fish and keep fish, that's totally fine. You really keep, honestly, probably as many as you want to. Really. Now, as a trophy catfish and angler and a, as are other tournament anglers, most people that you ask is going to say, we don't keep any fish over 15 pounds. We'll keep as many as we want under 15. We let everything else go. What we call it is CPR, catch, photograph, release. So we take a lot of pride in catfishing. We spend a lot of hours and on the river, and it's so super important to us that since the fish are here and they're not going anywhere, we want them bigger and better. So in these tournaments, we take it so serious. I mean, we've got 100-gallon live wheels. We've got oxygen systems. I mean, even in my boat, I've got a real oxygen tank with stones, and I put real oxygen in the water if I need to. If I've got three large fish, I need to keep them alive. One, because I won't see them swim away, and two, well, I want to win the tournament. But a lot of guys, a lot of guys will say, Tyler, these guys are setting limb lines and they're catching and keeping 20 and 30 fish. And that's okay. That is totally okay. I mean, that's the laws are there and the regulations for a reason because due to surveys, you know the fish, you know what's there, you know what's hurting, you know how it's evolved over time. And really, there's no shortage of catfish. And for me, being honest, I think the catfishing is better now than it's ever been. Judging by the state records that keep popping up, it's hard to argue. I mean, really, you know, and a lot of guys, I mean, the catfishing community is very serious about these catfish. When we see a guy holding up a 50-pound flathead that he's decided to keep, a lot of people are very upset. And, you know, and it hurts my feelings, The social media police will get serious about that. They are serious, man. If I held a 60-pound flathead up, and put it on Facebook, and I said, you know, I'm going to have a cookout. I would be probably the most hated person ever <laughs> from the catfishing community. And there's really no reason for that. And I hate to see that kind of animosity. And I know y'all have seen it, and people are bashing people all the time. There's no sense in doing that. If a guy wants to catch a fish and keep it, man, just leave him alone, congratulate him on his catch, and go on, because there's hundreds of them. There's thousands of them. And when you go tournament fishing and at the weigh-in, I'm talking to my buddies and stuff. And man, how'd you do? Man, it was great. We caught 25 or this guy caught 40 or... Well, think about it. There's fish everywhere. There's no shortage. They're not going anywhere. But if you do care about the catfish, their self, the blues and the flatheads, you know, the really only thing that I think 
to do to help catch bigger and better fish more frequently is to let the bigger fish go. But as far as keeping 10, 15, 20 pound fish, you keep as many as you want to. They're not going anywhere, but I personally am going to release, you know, I like to see catch and release of the bigger fish. So in the trophy, there's several reasons why, you know, a trophy rig would or wouldn't work. But in the climate that we currently have, I think you just summarized it great, is most of the guys who are targeting big catfish are releasing them. That's correct. So they're already being protected, to so to speak. Absolutely. And Ben, as we talked about, our catfishing is growing. Sport, the, the tournaments, it's growing huge. These guys are very serious about it. There's a lot of, a lot of, it's an exciting time for these anglers. And if this happening, these guys are trained, at, so to speak, to let the bigger ones go. And if they're doing that, there's already regulations. But if this one guy that's not a tournament angler wants to take him and his family out and they catch a 40 pounder, 50, it's okay. It is seriously okay. Don't bash them people. Let them. I encourage people to go catfishing, catch some fish, eat them, have fun. But we do like to see the bigger ones released. But it's not the end of the world. Now, the last thing you want to do is take somebody who's new to the sport, who's proud of their accomplishment, and then and bash them. And then bash them. Yeah, no, that's not the way to go. Man, just congratulate them, shake their hands, say, nice catch. Hope you get another one. So what do you think, Tyler, about... Like, for instance, I don't know what the limit that has been proposed in the past on flatheads. 32, that's kind of the standard that most folks I wonder ask where they for. came up with that number, but anyway. It's across the southeast, as you know. Yeah. So. so what do you say to people that it's 32 inches or nothing? I, I got to have this one over 32. and Because, honestly, that would affect y'all. Yeah, definitely. And how y'all operate, if it's a one over 32, well, guess what? The tournaments have just changed. You better have three people on your boat. You better have three people on your yep, boat. That's right. As of right now, like I said, I do this a lot. I've been doing this for several years. I do it every weekend nearly. As much as I can, I fish a tremendous amount of hours a year. He's my hero. And so it's my passion. And looking back in our last podcast we did, I think Ben mentioned documented with the notebook and, and what you've caught and where... And looking back at my notes and stuff, I've only done better every year, not because I'm getting better. I just think the fish are just getting bigger. They're getting older. They're getting larger. With no regulations. Now, this is strictly Noose River. These other rivers, I can't talk so much about. But but as far as Noose River, a regulation 32 and over, that's... I think it would hurt. Yeah, I mean, really... I don't think there's honestly a need for that. When I'm seeing people catching 50s, 60s more than ever. I remember when I first started five, say, tournament fishing six years ago. If you had 70 pounds with three fish, man, you you were looking good. You were to talk. You were like, man, no, you've got a pretty good shot at winning. If you don't come in with 110, 115, you probably don't have a chance. These fish are huge. So, Tyler, I said I think a reg like that would hurt. Yeah. And before we start getting emails. Oh, it's coming. About that. <laughs> yeah. I'd like Kaboom. to. Yeah, I want to clarify that. Because what, if you start protecting fish and they start pigeonhole themselves in a certain length group, they may grow really fast up until that, that length limit. And then if they hit that length limit and they stockpile in there, what you may actually see is a decrease in growth rate. Sure. 
So because there's so many fish in that area, we see it with other fish species that we work on. And if they stockpile in there, you're going to see growth rates decrease instead of having more fish. You actually could have more, but maybe they're all smaller within that larger fish group. That's definitely true. And one of the things we've seen like on the reservoirs that have the 32-inch limit on blue cats is it's either that scenario, basically they stockpile and they don't really get much above 32. That's just a rare fish anyway in those systems, right? And so we're really not doing anything. It's more social. It makes the angler feel better about what's going on. But from a biological perspective, it really is having little to no effect on the fish. We do conduct surveys on, you know, a lot of folks are like, well, I don't have any data. We do collect surveys on. That is not true. Yeah. We are out there collecting data and we do surveys on all of our coastal rivers on catfish and really the population metrics that we look at. We couldn't make it any better. I wish that some of the other species that I manage would do that are structured the same (laughs) way that flatheads and blue cats are. So. So that's the other thing is as we're looking at this data, and that's what we're trying to do is to share that with the anglers is we can show you, look, there's no real reason for alarm. Like Tyler said, it's getting better every year. Obviously, them being invasive and the pressure they're getting is working. Like the pressure from anglers that they're getting, whatever that pressure is, whether somebody's taking it home and eating it or whether somebody's catching it and releasing it, whether somebody's catching it and releasing it and it dies three days later because it got released, because that does happen too. Maybe not so much in catfish world, but it does happen to other species for sure. But whatever's happening, it's working. Right. We are producing some big we fish. We are producing big fish, particularly in the coastal plain. We are producing, and in our reservoirs, particularly in the eastern half of the state, those reservoirs that have blue cats in particular, it's been pretty good. I mean, Lake Gaston has been phenomenal. Most of the state records up until the one that we have now out of the Roanoke, which they're all in the same drainage, was producing state record cats, and I wouldn't be shocked if another state record cat came out of Gaston at some point down the road. But like I mentioned before, the train hasn't been going down the tracks, and there's really no slowing them down right now by what we see. In addition to that, you know, we talked about the invasive nature of this, but biologists talk to other biologists in other states, and we've had meetings on catfish management in places where blue cats and flatheads are native and where they've been for Skillions of years. That's a word, too. Another word. These regs aren't working. They're completely social. They're put in place because of public demand. And what they're finding is they're not really helpful. And they're not really pushing more fish into that larger size class. All it is is a regulatory burden on you at some level. You know, the angler, on us as anglers. And the funniest thing when I go, and I'm not poking fun, but I'm trying to prove a point, is, you know, nobody likes regulation as a general rule you know fewer rules the better i'll be honest i've been on the highway not many people listen to the speed limit right exactly so it's funny when i talk to some catfish anglers they're like man i gotta take a lawyer with me to go fishing i can't figure out what i can harvest and then in the same breath they're like when y'all gonna do something about these flatheads <laughs> you, know, <it's> like, <laughs> you just told me that's not what you like so it's a little funny sometimes how our attitude shifts species to species because it's what we love. That's right. But at the same time, if the biologists are telling you that the best data available says that everything is smooth sailing. And we don't get to say that very often. we rarely ever get to say that. 
if you're seeing something that I'm not seeing, I want to go out with you and I want you to show me what you're seeing. 100%, absolutely. If I'm wrong, I need to know about that. And I've got a lot of water to keep track of and a lot of systems and a lot of fish. And it is possible that I may not have the whole picture. And so if anglers want to show me something that they think I'm not seeing, I'm totally willing to see it. And that's what this whole podcast is all about, yeah. is making sure that anglers realize like we're not in this opposition. Oh. The long and short of it with both flatheads and blues is they're here. We hope y'all catch them. But we want you to know that there's some problems, some conservation concerns. You know, we're trying to rebuild Aaron. We're trying to rebuild American Shad. We're trying to rebuild striped bass. Not that a flathead's going to eat a large striped bass, but juveniles very easily. You know, blue cats, you know, the eggs. And we know they eat herring and American Shad. All the time. All the time. In the springtime, flatheads are eating American Shad and herring. I mean, yep. it's just what it is. They do. And it's just understanding these and understanding both sides of the puzzle, which is the, I mean, fish biologists have a tough job because there's almost never a clear right way to go because there's always going to be somebody has a little bit different perspective or a little bit different goal or a user group that has other interests than what we're trying to do. But from a regulatory perspective with these particular species, the blue and the flat, it is pretty clear that there's really nothing we can do to make it better than it currently is. Like I said before, that's pretty rare in fish management. It is. That we can say, look, we don't have to do a thing. We don't have to really manage them. They're managing themselves. Whatever's going on biologically and whatever's going on with the anglers and what they're doing with the fish, there's pretty much nothing we can do to make it any better. And to say it plainly, because I don't want, you know, agree or disagree is fine, but I don't ever want anybody to think I'm not saying what I'm saying, you know, is that because of their invasive nature in coastal rivers, it's not likely that we will put a protective length limit on them. The other side of that question is it's not necessary. So there's two different sides to that argument that play into the management plan that we currently have. And like Corey said, whether you're pro-flathead and pro-blue or not, the management that we're doing is working. And I think that's an important consideration. Which is watching. That's the management we're doing. I mean, we're obviously we're going out and we're looking at the fish. We're checking them. We're checking their biology, you know, how fast they're growing, how much they're reproducing, all that kind of stuff. But like truly like putting our hands on them, trying to manipulate a population like we do with bass or we do with crappy or something like that. We don't have to do that. These guys are doing their thing and they've got it figured out. and Doing it for you. Yeah, they're doing it for us. <laughs> yeah, which is both good and bad. That's, it has its ups yep, and its that's right. So, Tyler, there's an issue in the summertime, and you and I have talked a lot about it. Talk to me a little bit, and then we're probably going to have to wrap it up, but a little bit about the fish kills that you've seen this summer and that they've been reported. Yes, sir, man. So that was kind of, uh, you know, back to all of us tournament anglers wanting to see every fish swim away. every, And then all of a sudden, there's fish floating everywhere, and there's fish dying, and, and there's hundreds of fish, and they're just floating everywhere. And, and people's freaking out, and I'm getting phone calls and messages and videos, and what's going on? What do we do? How do we help them? Tyler and I never talk before about 10 o'clock p.m. <laughs> That's because he does day doesn't get started yeah, before 10 o'clock. He's asleep. Yeah, he's asleep prior yeah. to that. Yeah, so, you know, 
And even to me, it was my first time seeing it. Very concerning. I'm seeing 40s and 50s, and I think there was actually one about 62 pounds, and I just did. It's very descriptive, 62 pounds. I said, well, yeah, that's right. I saw the picture, and the guy did actually weigh the fish. Ah, so. I got you. That's how we know. 62, and a buddy of mine was showing me videos after videos and footage, and he did it for nights, and he said, Tyler, there's just there's nothing here. Everything was dying. So made some reports on that, and even sent it to Ben with our thoughts on it that uh, something has to be done. But Ben, what actually causes these fish kills? So anytime there's a fish kill, it is an unsightly thing. There's no doubt about it. And we really don't want to see them. But in all honesty, in coastal environments, fish kills are a regular thing that have been happening since the rivers were there. And really what happens, and the reason why we had one in Contentia Creek this year, we've had a couple up on the Roanoke, and it normally happens in some of these smaller creeks that, and it really tends to happen a lot when we're in these relatively dry years. When we're in these relatively dry years, what happens is the swamps that feed these creeks and rivers, the water kind of gets perched and dammed up in those swamps. And then when we get, we finally, we've been so dry this year, it's crazy. But when we finally get some rain and the river comes up, those swamps will get inundated and either through the inundation of that swamp or through the very next rain that we'll get. What will happen is as those swamps start to drain, a lot of that leaf litter and rotten plants and all that kind of swampy water starts to come out of the river or out of the swamp and into the river. And that can cause a dissolved oxygen spike because all that kind of material has been sitting there, and as soon as there's oxygen around, it starts to break down again, and it pulls the oxygen out of the water. When it pulls the oxygen out of the water, unfortunately, the biggest fish have the highest oxygen demand, and so it hits the biggest fish first, and you start to see some very unsightly things. And in all honesty, though, they're normally localized. It's never, like, unless we have a hurricane where it's, that on a much broader scale, really the issues that we see are kind of localized. You give it six to eight months, other fish have kind of recolonized the area and we're okay again. So while it looks catastrophic and is catastrophic in that localized area, as far as the long-term focus, you know, a year from now, there are going to be probably just as many fish as there before, or maybe slight dip, but there'll still be fish there as those fish spawn and repopulate the area. We'll be right back to normal in just a handful of years. And again, because there's not a lot of catfish harvest, that helps growth rates. It helps keep things dynamic. You kind of thin down the population a little bit, and sometimes you can kind of keep those growth rates dynamic and fast. So it's not while it's unsightly, there are some positive benefits of it, too. Corey, you got anything to add to that? No, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It happens. It's natural. It needs to be reported in case yes. it's not in natural. In case it's not natural, please do report a fish kill for sure, because sometimes that does occur where they're not natural. Something happens in the water that shouldn't. But I'm from New Bern, been around New Bern for 40-plus years, and fish kills have been going on for 40-plus years, and they were going on long before that. So... and. Don't get me wrong. It's not like it's not like we get the phone call like ah another fish kill. No. It's a serious thing, and we will be out this fall or next spring surveying the areas affected to make sure that there's not a larger issue at hand. 
but we can't go out there immediately after the fish kill because we won't really be able to get a get a real good grasp of that recolonization that I was talking yeah. about. Yeah, the take home for me to everyone listening would be even during a hurricane fish kill, right? Like it's massive. You know, there's massive death going on in the river. And it does set the river back for a few years. There's like a reset button almost. And it's almost like a natural reset button at some level. But that reset button does happen. And those species do come back. You know, it might be down for a couple of years in certain species, but in general, they come back. And sometimes they come back stronger than ever. And one example I would use would be largemouth on the noose. Largemouth on the noose right now. Out the, I mean, it's strong phenomenal. as it's ever been. Strong as it's ever been. And that's post a massive hurricane. I'll also say the blue catfish record, the channel catfish record, the flathead cat were all post Irene or Isabel. Which one? I don't remember. Well, they were both fish, fish kills for both of those. All of those records were post those significant coastal I'll fish kills. And there's something about those fish that survive that I don't know that they're stronger, tougher, whatever, but they seem to be tougher, stronger, grow faster, all that kind of stuff when they recolonize. And so just be patient. They're going to come back. It's going to be down a year or two. But like I said, I've never seen bass fishing like it's been on the noose since that fish kill. It's just been phenomenal. And yeah, I mean, we get those phone calls and people get upset and and I get it. And it looks horrible. I mean, it really does. And it can smell horrible too, in case you don't know, rotten fish do stink. Indeed. Very poorly. It's pretty rough. But if everybody will be patient, they'll recolonize. And that's kind of my take home. It's just, and we've done studies on certain species like largemouth where we, we actually went back and stocked fish to see if we would have an effect by stocking fish in the coastal rivers. And we really had didn't. zero effect. It was all natural reproduction from the fish that were already there. And I mean, we stocked hundreds of thousands of fish, you know, in a certain stream and we go back and look, we tagged them all. I mean, I spent hours tagging these stupid things. And my mind's going crazy thinking, oh, this is going to be a great study. And we go back. And it was a great study because what we found was there's really nothing we can do in these very large systems. They re- kind of recolonize on their own. It's actually pretty cool to watch. So before we're almost out of time, but before we move on to listener questions, I just want to give Tyler, I mean, is there anything else that we need to talk about? Questions that you had? Anything? You want to add? I think we kind of went over a lot of good things here. And as a catfish angler, I encourage any and everybody that has never catfished to try it. I would too. I had a blast. I had a blast. It was fun. You ain't got to have a boat. You can fish from the bank. Fish anywhere. Just just try it. You don't have to have any high dollar equipment. Just go by you any kind of setup and just start fishing. And I think you might realize how fun it is to actually catch these fish. And they are tasty too, so take one home with you and fry them up. And uh, I think you might like a little bit more than you think. Yeah, that's a great message. And I would say, I would add to that, literally catfish are across the state of North Carolina. And the opportunities to catch small to medium ones for those kinds of people that have that kind of tackle, don't have this geared up tackle like you do, that opportunity is available throughout North Carolina. In ponds, reservoirs, rivers, streams, Go find a body of water. Catfish are probably there at sure. some level. And if you want to try to tackle some of these larger ones, they're pretty much everywhere too. You're going to have to gear up and get a little bit bigger gear. You're not going to be able to take your micro fishing rod down there and catch you an 80-pound flat. I mean, you might. 
But that's going to be pretty stuff. Not from what I've seen. Not from what I've seen. <laughs> if the man that does it every day is using 150-pound braid with, you know, super heavy action rods, that might be the direction you want to head to. It really has been interesting to watch the evolution of catfishing over the last few years and see what's happened in the popularity. And it used to be kind of just something you did when there wasn't anything to do. And now... People are as serious about catfish as they are about bass fishing, Arlen fishing, you name Trout it. Trout fishing in the mountains. I mean, it's all the people that are serious about it are really serious and about it. And they're spending cool. serious coin in this pursuit. Yeah, I just saw a price on one of those catfish fever rods. Yeah. That is, if you buy 10 of them, you're ponying up a little bit of coin. You've made an investment in catfishing for sure. That's right. But it's amazing just to watch it and see it. So I hope you guys kind of maybe these last two podcasts can kind of encourage you to get out there and see it. Even if you're not a cat fisherman, go try it because it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. But moving forward, we're going to do a couple of listener questions real quick. The first one, Corey, is fish survival and catch release. We've got a guy that fishes for stripers on Car Lake or Kerr Lake or Bugs Island. Whatever. I'm going to say Car because it's where I'm from. It's Car Lake. Okay. We're, there we are. I mean, between you and I, it's Car Lake. We're going to get some emails. We will. It's okay. Whatever. I know what you're talking about when you say you fish there. And he wants to talk about fizzing or live well use for short rehab. And especially on Car Lake, when there is a size limit, what's the best way to to handle your releasing of a fish so that it swims away well? We're talking about striped bass. So really, time of year makes a Mm -hmm. big difference. Water temperature makes a huge difference. If you're out there in the cooler water months, they can handle being handled pretty well. They're not going to last in your live well all day long. If you put them in your live well, you've pretty much, I mean, unless you got these striper tubes and all that kind of stuff. And even then, eh, it's iffy. Right. They don't like that kind of stress. They'll get stressed out pretty quick and they'll die in a live well for sure. If you're releasing the fish, you know, some of the best practices you can use Obviously, circle hooks tend to do a little bit better than J-hooks. Like out on the Roanoke, we even require a barbless hook. That can help in your release. The less amount of time that they're out of the water, you know, if you're taking pictures, and I encourage you to take pictures and, and have fun and all that, and because you're making memories, right, right, when you're going fishing. And if you, you don't have a picture... It's not like you didn't do it, but you can't show it off to all your friends like Ben and I do. We send pictures of fish. Ben sends more pictures my way than I do his way because he goes fishing a lot more than me. I think I'm creating some animosity there. From <laughs> Yeah. And there's been some talk <laughs> about that. He had some snide comments. I did the last have picture some snide comments. Well, I wasn't fishing and you were, so that was the problem. <laughs> but limit the amount of time that they're out of the water. That's probably the most critical thing you can do. Any fish. Any fish at all. If you as soon as is, you can get them back in the water the better off they'll be. Whether it's these large catfish or whether it's a striped bass, the amount of time, if you're going to catch and release it and not take it home and eat it, the less amount of time it's out of the water, the better. I have never met a fish that didn't like water. Yes, that's true. They don't really like dry land all that much. Fizzing is kind of an interesting thing. It's hit or miss. And you got to know what you're doing because you can damage the fish from fizzing. That's one of the things you can do. And fizzing is basically a practice of basically sticking a needle in the swim bladder to lessen that swim bladder and to get the fish to swim away. A lot of times happens in high water temperatures or coming out from real deep water, you know, those kinds of things. One of the best groups that handles fizzing is actually uh, bass, B-A-S-S. They have a whole thing about fizzing. 
I would suggest if you want to learn more about fizzing and how to fizz, I'm not the keeper of the flame on fizzing. I don't fizz. I just get the fish back in the water. And generally, I don't catch fish to have the swim bladder issue with fizzing anyway. Right. You have to catch a fish relatively deep. Yes, it's relatively deep. 30 foot or more yes, most of the time. It has to be that for the most part. And then, you know, like when I'm blue cat fishing at Lake Norman, you know, a lot of times they're in 80 foot of water. And one of the things that you have to learn about blue cat fish is you have to give them that time as they're coming up and you'll actually see them burp. I mean, you'll see the, you know, that bubble when you're like, okay, that fish will go back down once I release it. But if you don't see the burp, that fish is going to struggle right. and you're going to have to do something to help it. You know, you're going to have to fizz it or whatever to help them out. But yeah. I would only fizz a fish that's having trouble. Yes. If the fish goes back, then that fish is fine. Because a lot of the research has shown that, you know, especially if you don't know exactly what you're doing, it's about a 50-50 yeah. whether it works or not. So fizzing isn't like the magic wand of catch and release. I think the best thing you can do is get him back in the water, send him on his way. And if he pops back up, then maybe you're going to have to do something a little bit more. And like I mentioned, BASS has a whole suite of literature on fizzing. And actually, they have kits, I think, that they'll give away. So I would suggest going to their website, checking them out, seeing what you think about their fizzing and going in that direction. Okay, so the next question is, do you guys ever electrofish the Northeast Cape Fear River? If so, what proportions and are there surveys available? Why are you asking me this question? This is probably more my question. This is your question. I'll it's take this. So the answer is absolutely. In fact, for my work group, I don't want any of the biologists that I work with to have a piece of water that we haven't surveyed. It's very important that we go everywhere and that we survey all of our populations because you never know when there's going to be somebody who's interested in a piece of water. So yes. If we haven't been somewhere, we're planning to be there soon. We have done electrofishing surveys on the Cape Fear for sunfish, for catfish, for bass, for stripers. Many of those surveys are available online. You can go to our webpage, ncwildlife.org, and click on the fishing link. Then you can scroll down to the bottom, and it'll say research and reports and you click, like that. Yep. you click on that link and then there'll be a host. You can get lost in there, the amount of information that's available that you can click on through there. So yes, it's available. If you can't find what you're looking for, you can always email us at twoballbiologist at ncwildlife.org. So the last question, and this is kind of an interesting one. I talked in the last podcast about how folks are doing what we're recommending through this podcast and using the information that we have to try to help them catch more fish. I'm going to summarize this a little bit. We got Mr. Will here. He's using some of DWQ's data on dissolved oxygen in the in the reservoirs. And he's looking at the webpage. And he's looking at dissolved oxygen levels. He's asking what's the optimum oxygen level and at what depth because he's trying to fish ledges for bass in the summertime. And he says, historically, when the water hits the high 80s, he likes to drop shot them on the ledges, but he wants to double check the oxygen levels to see if those conditions are suitable for fishing. This is some advanced stuff That's here. That's advanced stuff there. So the first thing I would say is it's going to vary from reservoir to reservoir. Not all reservoirs are the same when it comes to oxygen levels at certain depths. Like It's going to vary hour to hour, day to day. And that was my next statement is it's going to vary hour to hour. The oxygen levels change at different depths throughout. I mean, yes, there is a stratification in reservoirs that happens, but that thermocline, basically where the oxygen level is, 
where you go from having oxygen to not having oxygen below it is going to go up and down throughout the day. And it might vary where you are in the reservoir, depending on how large the reservoir is and how it sets up. So there's a lot of variables here. I would tell him the one thing, and, and a lot of anglers know this, and he probably even knows this, you can actually see the thermocline in a lot of reservoirs because that's where fish will hold. Because a lot of our fish species in North Carolina, they don't want to be super hot. They kind of want to be cool, but they got to have oxygen to breathe. I'm the same way. Yeah, come to think of it, <laughs> the same way too, now that you say that. So what they do is they go to the coolest water that they can find that still has enough oxygen for them to breathe. And that typically is right at the thermocline. So if you look at your sonar unit on your boat, you actually see those fish stack up along that thermocline. And that can kind of give you an idea of the depth of water from there above is going to have oxygen. From there below, it's going to be the oxygen is either going to be really diminished or it's going to be non-existent. That doesn't mean, once again, it's not 100% that all fish are above that line or that there's no fish below that line. That's not my point. But the bulk of them will be somewhere around that thermocline, which is about, in most reservoirs, the thickness of that thermocline is usually somewhere between 5 to 20 feet deep, depending on the reservoir. Lake Norman, the thermocline tends to be a lot wider. Some of these smaller reservoirs, it's going to be a lot less depth. You know, it's going to be like 5 feet deep. All right. The one thing I told Will was just, one, instead of worrying about a specific number, was to worry more about a change. Yeah. You know, and if you see it go from from five parts per million to two parts per million, that's probably going to shut the bite down, even if the fish are still fine. Yep. Stressed out. Because it definitely will stress those fish. But also, if there's some sort of magic mark that you're looking for, well, guess what? In the summertime in North Carolina, we're rarely at magic mark levels anyway. Yeah. So that's why that noting a change is a lot more important than than what's ideal because ideal in the summertime really doesn't occur. And the take home, you can see this like if anybody owns a pond, you can see this in a pond all the time. You can feel it. You can feel it if in you're a standing pond. in your that's pond. That's exactly right. You can feel it. You can feel the water differences between above you and if you're like swimming in the pond, you can feel that it's cooler right. along the bottom. Well, that's what's happening. You're getting this stratification. And that stratification, not only is it thermal, it's also oxygen-related too. And it can change. Like early in the morning could be totally different than mid-afternoon. Especially in a larger reservoir, a wind can make it completely change. Yeah, there's so many variables to oxygen, particularly in the summertime. In the wintertime, when the water cools off and everything gets kind of homogenized, there's less of that involved. But in the summertime, it's all over the map and you just kind of have to watch it and adjust. I thought that was a great question, very unique question, but it also speaks to the way our anglers are trying to tease stuff apart for success. I think it's awesome. There's some reservoirs in the central part of the state that actually have oxygenation systems in them. Mm -hmm. I would advise you to try to find one and go fish it. (laughs) Fish like oxygen. Fish like oxygen. And so... What that's providing is providing an artificial oxygen area, right? Probably in deeper, cooler water. So guess what? The fish are going to go find that. Right. And so there's places in our state that if you find that that opportunity during the summertime, there's probably fish around those areas, and I would look for them. Well, this has been great. I've enjoyed it. I learned so much going out with Tyler, just learning how he does things and having the opportunity to Go catch a really large fish was super cool because I don't get to do that very often. So that's pretty neat. It's always unique when you go fishing with somebody who, one, pretty good at what they do. Yep. 
and two, does something slightly different than what you do. Because it's always amazing how you can pick up a few little tips here or there that'll translate to what yeah, you do. I mean, like we talked about how he sets the hook through the fish and just how he has everything lined up. And it's all very similar. Like we've talked about in the past, if you learn a technique one place, it's probably going to transfer that technique. It might be slightly different, but it's going to transfer to other fish that you can catch. Right. This has been great. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler, for being here. We really appreciate you being on the podcast. I appreciate y'all having me here. And we'll talk again. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twoballedbiologist at ncwildlife.org.